Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scratch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I wanna do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Oh, hello. It's that lady that sells air plants in abalone shells at the farmer's market, Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. So in this podcast, I usually try to get you to love and appreciate things you think you do not care about because people and subjects are crazy and beautiful with just a little bit of context. But in this episode, it's time to know thine enemies. So we're going to discuss disease Disease, the lack of ease, shit that makes you ill, sometimes actual shit that makes you ill, and breath that can kill a million soldiers. So it's dark, it's fascinating, I'm kind of scared, but as we learned in last week's Selacomorphology episode about sharks. Our brain is programmed to get a little squirt of happy juice when we're scared. Okay, so before we go down an infectious hole of viral wonders, let's just think some quick little happy thoughts first. Okay, so number one, today is your last day to cash in on the ologiesmerch.com July sale with 10% off your entire order using the code CAMPOLOGIES. Go for it. Get a backpack. Get a bikini. Also, thank you to all the patrons on patreon.com slash ologies. You guys kick in a dollar or more each a month to submit questions. And honestly, you just, you keep the show running. It wouldn't run without you. So thank you. And thank you to everyone who has rated or reviewed or subscribed. You guys are keeping ologies. One of iTunes top rated science shows that says bad words. It's a distinction that probably Dismays my parents. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Larry. But not enough science podcasts go there. The embarrassing places. The gross places. The profane places. Thank you for all the kind reviews. As you guys know, I'm just just a touch creepy. And I read them because I think it's so nice that you leave them. And to prove it, I shout out one each episode as a thank you. This week, Red and Black 13 says, Bees? Bees. My friend recommended this to me, and I was like, um, okay, you just listened to a podcast episode all about bees, and you thought it was good? I mean, 
okay, I will trust your judgment and maybe try this and listen to one that maybe isn't about bees. So I did. And now I've listened to seven episodes in less than seven days. And I refer to myself as not much of a podcast listener. And that's the level of binge listen I'm at. Highly recommend. So fun. So informative. You might even take notes and it will be amazing. So thank you everyone who reviews and subscribes and rates and takes a risk of telling your friends about this weird show. Okay. Disease. Disease. Now, first off, the word epidemiology comes from what else? The Greek. Um, it's cobbled from epi, meaning upon, and demos, meaning people. So it's something that is upon the people. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that an epidemiologist can study everything from infectious diseases to natural disasters, terrorism, non-infectious diseases, environmental exposures, and also injuries. So if it is upon the people, epidemiologists are there, they're on the scene, they got a clipboard, a notebook, maybe a hazmat suit, and they're just figuring that shit out before a cold turns into Armageddon. Now, this episode has been months in the making, and it's an ologies first. It's two guests, and they already have their own damn podcast. It's so exciting. So I was aware of both of them from the World Wide Web, and I'm proud to say they're mutuals. And their show, This Podcast Will Kill You, is just killing it. It was number one on the science charts earlier this year. And at the time they were making it, they were also just casually both getting their PhDs, which is quite a feat. I can barely make this podcast and have clean socks. So they're on a little sabbatical right now, but they're coming back with more new episodes this fall. They're based in Illinois, and we met up at the hub of just everything cool, the Field Museum. Also, special shout out to Kate Golombeski, aka sciencekate.com, who works at the Field Museum for being so kind. And you hooked us up with a quiet room to record this in, a place where we could talk about open source privately. So we settled in just one ologies podcaster and two this podcast will kill you hosts. We scrappily shared two mics between the three of us and we talked about plagues and ticks and cholera and flus and pandemic capitalism and Ebola and hand washing and smallpox and SARS and field work and dissertations and some surprising thoughts on the culture of academia. So please be very prepared to become huge giant fans of epidemiologists Dr. Aaron Welsh and Dr. Aaron Alman Updike. Now, which one of you is Aaron? Mm, JK, JK, that's a JK, great JK. question. <laughs> oh, God. I might as well be wearing, like, Oakleys on a lanyard and some Crocs. That was such a dad joke question. But yes, both are named Aaron. So I'm Aaron Almond Updike. And I'm Aaron Welsh. And Dr. Welsh has long, straight, dark hair. She was wearing a smart black tank top. Dr. Almond Updike is tall. She was wearing a blue jumpsuit, and she has curly hair. And although I did not see their brains, I would can describe them, and they're amazing. Epidemiologists, both of you. <laughs> and doctors? 
Yeah. Officially? Officially. Like fresh doctors. Fresh doc. Like fresh. How, when did you become, when did you get your PhDs? I literally deposited on Monday. <gasps> it's Friday. So five days ago is when it's official, official. <laughs> oh my God. And then Aaron? I defended a few weeks ago and I'm still waiting to deposit. I was like, huh, what? But Dr. Almanufdike explained that you present all of your research and findings to this PhD approval panel, which I like to imagine consists of Heidi Klum and Simon Cowell and that guy from Maroon 5 and maybe Sporty Spice. And then afterward, they can say, okay, well, go make a few tweaks, dog. And then you like air quote deposit it back to them. And then the deposit. And the deposit is when it's like all stamped, official, <gasps> done. Oh, so. my God. Yeah. It's like the library has to check your margins and they're like, please remove this space. And you're like, for real? OK, I'll do <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> what did you do when you deposit? Like, do you put it into a Dropbox and then do you moonwalk away in joy? I wish it was that. That sounds like such a more satisfying experience. I literally emailed a PDF in and then they sent it back and they're like, um, one of your titles has a hyphen in the table of contents and not on your page. Oh so God. you need to delete that. And I was like, OK. So I did that and I sent it back and then they're like, like, congratulations. Oh, my God. <laughs> so both errands have PhDs reflective of a certain specific epidemic. Dr. Alman Updike's PhD is in entomology, which is bugs, because she studied Chagas disease, which is contracted from tiny little parasites carried by the kissing bug, which is also oddly known as an assassin bug. And it's like kissing and having a hit out on me like those are just like pick up. Pick a personal brand. Those are very different activities. Now, also, our buddy Darwin, a.k.a. the father of evolutionary biology theories, is said to have had Chagas disease. Speaking of evolution, Dr. Welsh just got her PhD in ecology, evolution, and conservation biology, and she was studying tick-borne diseases in Panama. So both have masters in epidemiology, and they studied epidemics for their PhDs, they have a podcast all about epidemiology, but they both were not sure if they should call themselves epidemiologists. They were just demurring, as many humble brainiacs often do. I was not having that. You have a master's in epidemiologist, yeah. but you're but you're not an epidemiologist. It's really hard to call yourself things sometimes when you're like, oh, well, everyone else is. No, I call exception. bullshit on that. You're an epidemiologist. So says I. <laughs> now, when did you guys realize that you were fascinated? with diseases and also briefly how'd you meet oh that's fun um so i know exactly when i started getting into disease um i was into biology but i wanted to be a shark biologist that oh. was what i was going to school to study aquatic biology and at the marine science institute at ucsb where i went they were having this like party for like the 100th or 50th anniversary or something and there was this professor there who everyone loved shout out to armin curris um and he taught three classes and i asked him at this party where wine was involved i was like of your three classes what which one is the best one and he said he got very very serious like extreme he like the wine was gone and he was like listen this is not an exaggeration 10% of my students' lives are changed by my parasitology class. 10%. 10%. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I better take it. But I thought he was joking. He wasn't joking. And I literally, like, I think it was the second lecture, which was on schistosomiasis, and he calls it the hook. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and he he's like this this is the one that changes people's lives and I kid you not it changed my life I was like oh this is what I have to study and I went to his office like almost in tears where I was like it's my senior year and I'm about to graduate and I don't know what to do with my life and he's like you'll be fine and then that's where that's how it happened so now uh Smythe says not hookworms right it is not a hookworm. hooky worm it is the hooky worm lecture and now Aaron what did when did you know diseases were for you I actually kind of came at it from a different, slightly different perspective. I, uh, I, when I started university undergrad, I was majoring in nursing oh. and I thought, okay, I really am interested in sort of this health aspect and the, the concept that every day it's something new and it's really exciting. You can go anywhere, you can see all these different things. And so it was sort of like this way to sate my curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I did about a year and a half of that until I had to take as part of the nursing curriculum, a class in microbiology. It was at 8 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Oof. Brutal, right? Yeah. And so, but something was different about this particular class. 8 a.m. classes. I was, I mean, I slept through a, an exam that was at 10 a.m. Like, I was not an early bird. <laughs> it was embarrassing. Yeah, that was music. Whoopsie. Um, and so, 8 a.m., to actually have to get up and get out of bed and go to this class was, like, at the beginning, I was like, oh, God, I can't do this. But then I was like, I don't want to miss it, actually. I found myself wanting to be there every single morning. And it was like the only class, I think, maybe in my entire undergrad that I didn't skip once. So that Damn. during that semester, I said, OK, this is actually what I need to be doing. So then I switched into biology, started. I joined a lab, microbiology lab, looking at plague. And then I kind of transitioned oh into epidemiology and then ended up doing um, disease ecology. That is the most casual use of the word plague I have ever. You just <laughs> drop that like so smooth <laughs> boom yeah well, you know it's just studying plague and yeah. <laughs> and now how did you guys meet well um so i'm from kentucky originally and i we both go to the university of illinois mm -hmm. and i started uh, in the phd program in 2012 and then the next year i got an email from my advisor saying okay we have a few new students joining the lab um and one of them is basically you times two she, <laughs> her name is erin she has a master's in epidemiology and she's she'll be joining the lab meanwhile dr Alman updike newcomer to the lab, was nervous to meet Dr. Welsh because she'd done all this cool work in Panama. She seemed like a badass. But one blessed summer afternoon on a Friday. <laughs> and I like peeked my head around the corner of the office. Yeah. And I was like, um, hi, are, are you Aaron? Because I'm Aaron. Aww. And you were the best human ever. You were like, yeah. Hi, and then she like forced me to come to happy hour that same night, oh. and we've been soulmates ever since. Oh my god, double yeah. Aaron epidemiologist! <laughs> now, when did you decide we need to take this relationship to the podcast level? September of last year, mm -hmm. um, my friend hosts a barbecue every year called the Larbecue. His name is Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And I forced Aaron to come with me last year. And uh, we were sitting around. It's like, it's mostly my partner's friends. And so I was like, oh, you know, we'll come and just like to eat delicious food and hang out. Mm -hmm. um, and Aaron and I were being very antisocial. And we sat in a corner of the yard the whole time. So chatting about parasites and ignoring all the other living humans, they said those fateful words now akin to platonic marriage vows, we should have a podcast. And the next thing you know, they were dreaming up themed drinks 
aka quarantinis, to match their epidemic episodes. We came up with the idea of quarantinis that exact moment and like started coming up with a list of names, uh, many of which we've actually used. (laughs) Your quarantinis are are so clutch. They're They're really fun. They're really like a nice addition. And you're so funny and passionate about this that it's like, of course, you're the right people to be schooling the earth on plagues. (laughs) And you make you make influenza so accessible. And I really appreciate that. Um, Do you have a favorite quarantini that you've made? Ooh, yes. Okay. My favorite is actually the first one, which was the H1 drink one. Um, <laughs> yes, I remember. Yeah, that one, which is technically just a Corpse Reviver number two. Mm-hmm. That's like the official name for it. It was super delicious. What's your fave? I think I really enjoyed that one. And then what was in the Harmadillo? Oh, I also have to put a plug in for um, Rice Water Stool, oh, which yeah. sounds Ooh. horrific, but mm. tastes delicious. Rice Water Stool. Is that a cholera? It yes, is. Right. Yep. I li- believe. Yes, I remember that episode also. <laughs> Thank you for taking me back. <laughs> now, what is it about diseases and epidemics that you really love and like what is your goal like what's your mission do you want to make people more afraid of diseases or less afraid it's a good question my the thing i love about diseases and it sucks that you can't say things like i love disease like people get offended um but i am really interested by the complexities of disease um and so that's why we both sort of ended up studying disease ecology because it's looking at disease from a very like wide angle Mm -hmm. and understanding all of the intricate details between the host and the pathogen and the environment and vectors and multiple hosts and complicated life cycles and so that's what really hooked me about diseases are these diseases that are very complex and difficult to understand and therefore difficult to treat and deal with right um especially when they go through so many hosts and they've got to go yeah. through this snail to get to this frog, to get to this pelican exactly. who like shits on a fisherman who like makes out with a seal. And then the next thing you know, like a whole village is dead. Exactly. Right. right. And it's so interesting that an organism could evolve a life cycle like that. Like why, how did you get there? How right. did you come up with that? How did that happen? Um, so that's what really like fascinates me about disease. So I th- think that our goal is more to just get people thinking about how interesting diseases are definitely not to scare them more but i think that's the end result sometimes well yeah i think i mean i think part of the the goal for me is sort of it's mostly to inform and so part of it is if 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 learning about how widespread and unchecked malaria is scares you that's a good thing because it should scare you you know malaria other neglected tropical diseases are huge issues and so i think that it's more of um it's it's bringing awareness to these these problems that still exist and that we don't actually, most people don't really think about on the day-to-day basis because we're not confronted with it. Right. Because we have vaccines, we have easy access to healthcare. Well, (laughs) questionable. (laughs) Lols. Yeah. (laughs) We do have the potential for access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And um, whereas in, you know, other countries lack that completely. And so the, the driving force behind my interest in a lot of this in disease or in disease ecology is putting it all in context. Mm-hmm. So when I think that when when I have taken history classes, it all seems so segmented, like bullet pointed. So and then this war happened and then this you know invention happened. And, and instead of putting it all into the perspective, OK, but what else was going on at the time? Right. And so when I when I was in this this lab working on plague, the first thing I did was I ran out and bought a book on the Black Death. Mm-hmm. And and I was Hot. shocked to learn the extent to which it impacted humanity. And still there are like echoes of it today. Mm-hmm. So understanding how this thing that 
we think about we, we think about these things in little cells. Like, okay, we put disease over there, we put history over there, we put biology over here, and it's they mm. don't really all interact together. And so I think sort of putting these things in context is where it really became fascinating for me. And so how much of your work and your research and your science communication deals with kind of domestic epidemics versus global ones that we, we haven't quite implemented solutions that we may have implemented in the first world? Dr. Welsh says... My research is on tick-borne disease and climate change, and this all takes place in Panama. And so I basically was trying to understand where ticks are, mm -hmm. um, which ticks are infected, and why they are where they are, when they are, and then mm -hmm. throwing in the pathogen into that. Okay, let's predict how tick-borne disease will change in the future. We just have to understand what drives it currently. We talk about how a domestic outbreak can, or like a, a small little outbreak of disease can turn it into an epidemic, can turn into a pandemic. And let's address that. Run me through, what is an epidemic versus a pandemic? Yeah, great question. So an epidemic is essentially just an outbreak of a disease um, that is outside what is normal for that community. So if you had even a few cases of plague in the U.S., that might be an epidemic because plague doesn't happen very commonly in the U.S. I just got to break in here because to the gratefully uninitiated, like, like uh, what is plague? I thought maybe it was just a catch-all term for some bad shit that kills people, but plague is an actual disease caused by a specific bacterium, Yersinia pestis. Pestis? Like a little bit on the nose, but okay. So plague is transmitted through fleas that live on rodents, and there are three styles, if you will. There's septicemic, which infects your blood through a flea bite and is 100% fatal if left untreated. Just boom, you're out. And then there's bubonic plague, which was responsible for the pandemic in the 1300s known as the Black Death, or just the plague. I think it's really all an inflection here. You can't really call the Black Death the plague. I think it's more like the plague, like how Chandler on Friends would say it. Now, the Black Death was responsible for up to 200 million deaths in just over four years. This bubonic plague, FYI, is when the bacteria enter the body through a flea bite and they infect lymph nodes and it causes them to swell and maybe burst. These are called bubos, which sounds so cute, like a term of endearment for your grandma, but they're actually swollen lumpy nodes of infected plague that can kill you and others. But wait, there's more. Now the third type of plague, pneumonic plague, can also involve bubos, but includes lung infection. So what I'm trying to say, next time you're having a bad day, there's like not enough ice in your cold brew, or maybe your new jeans stained a whole load of towels indigo. Just think, well, fuck, at least I don't have plague. Epidemiologists also suggest not handling dead animals in areas where plague is common. And for some of us, that warning may be well needed. I've handled the dead thing here and there. Thankfully, not in plague-torn areas. I'm just going to give a shout out to Greece, the 1978 musical, which issued this warning about duplicitous, leather-clad John Travolta's being vectors of widespread suffering. Men are rats. Listen to me. They're, they're fleas on rats. Worse than that, there are amoebas on fleas on rats. Eh, amoebas, bacteria, and you're close enough. 
But it, in Madagascar, there is a cyclical cycle of plague. Ugh. And so it like a few cases is normal. But last year when we were recording, like last fall, there was a huge outbreak. There was an epidemic. And so any when you have disease happening in a population that's larger than the norm, that's oh, an epidemic. OK. And then a pandemic just means an epidemic that's gone global. Usually it means global, but it could even just mean it has spread to like many different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so a pandemic is just an epidemic that's spread globally. How do epidemiologists feel about people saying like Snapchat addiction is an epidemic? <laughs> like, how do you feel about it being misapplied? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I kind of roll my eyes at it. Okay. Like, I think, like, we call everything an epidemic these days. And it's like, okay, yeah, people are using Snapchat more than they did 10 years ago because it didn't exist. Right. Chill. I rolly, yeah. Don't steal the thunder of an epidemic. Because when I need to talk about ticks on your butt, like, I need this (laughs) word to mean something. Yeah. I do have a question about, I have so many millions of questions. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Run me through the different types of epidemics like what is a virus versus a bacterium versus a parasite versus a is are there fungal epidemics like for sure what flavors are there yeah so there's a bunch of different flavors just based on what the pathogen is Mm -hmm. so a pathogen is just a microorganism that Mm -hmm. causes disease so you can have viruses you can have bacteria you could certainly have fungal infections fungal infections are less common because generally our immune system is better equipped at dealing with them so you're usually most susceptible to fungal infections if you're already immunocompromised. Oh, okay. So, um, and then you also can have like parasitic infections and usually people distinguish between parasites and pathogens, meaning pathogens are microscopic and parasites are larger. Okay. Is that right? For the most part. I mean, I've also heard people say a protozoan is a parasite. Let's say you're on a date and suddenly you realize, wow, it would really impress this person to know some information about protozoa. Well, I'm here to help. So a protozoa, single-celled organism that has a nucleus. So bacteria are also single-celled, but they don't have a nucleus. No, I did not know this. Yes, I just had to Google it. You are welcome. I hope this leads to scintillating conversation and maybe smooches, provided nobody has the plague. I was going to say, do they have to have like a mouth and a butt to be full? But, uh, but... Even single-celled organisms have that yeah, sometimes. So, okay. So, so it really depends maybe on who you're asking. Yeah. And can you run me through what exactly is a virus? A virus is, uh, you can't even really call it an organism, right? Is it an alien? Is it a tiny space it's alien? It's not an Level alien because they were definitely here before us. Okay. That's genetic material. It's, yeah, it's genetic material, usually DNA or RNA, okay. surrounded by a protein coat. And that's pretty much it. It's just like like genetic material in a sack of protein and it can't replicate on its own. So that's why people don't call it a living thing because it has to infect something else for it to actually make more of itself. Oh my God. There are some giant viruses that they've discovered recently that are like my, I don't know about any of those, like the ones that live in the Arctic and stuff Uh that are massively huge compared to other viruses, like in terms of they have way larger genomes than most viruses. And they're like huge, like they're larger than some bacteria in actual physical size. And a virus is essentially like, from what I remember, it's like a hexagon or something like shaped pod with weird um, legs, like a claw (laughs) machine that you would get a stuffed animal out of at Chuck E. Cheese. 
and it just comes and then it sticks its weird virus dick in you and then it just puts its DNA in you. Is that, am I a doctor now? You're pretty much like, okay. I'm going to give you an honorary PhD. Thank you. <laughs> so that what you're thinking of specifically is a type of bacteriophage. Okay. I think it's called T7. I was totally thinking of a bacteriophage, which is a virus that preys on bacteria. Its name, bacteriophage, literally means I eat bacteria. And apparently, they're known informally just as phages. Like, please, please. My father is bacteriophage. Call me phage. It has a name. That specific one that one time my roommate drew in henna on her arm, and I was like, we should all get that tattooed. It's so beautiful. (laughs) But... That Yeah, so that's a bacteriophage. So that's a specific type of virus that infects bacteria. Okay. But not all viruses look like that. Oh. They can be little squiggles. So like the virus that causes Ebola mm-hmm. is actually this little squiggly guy that if you just were looking at it without any context, you might think it's some kind of like spirochete bacteria or something mm-hmm. if you don't have a size scale. But yeah, it's just this little squiggly guy. You can have viruses that are just sort of balls like uh, influenza virus is like a ball with spikes coming out of it kind of. Oh, yes. I feel like I've seen that on uh, on herbal remedies yes. for flus. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of different shapes and all of those shapes are just basically the protein coat. So whatever mm-hmm. protein structure it makes, that's what will determine what the virus looks like. Okay. And, and then it injects its little penis probe is uh-huh. just it pushing its genetic material into whatever cell it's infecting. <sighs> like, can you not? You know right? what I mean? Like, it's so do rude. You mind? Did you ask permission? I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> do you guys feel like there is a certain kind of vector or pathogen that is the worst news? Mm-hmm. Like, which of the types of pathogens are you like, oh, no. Influenza. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Let's talk about because this was your first episode on yeah. this podcast will kill you. Yeah. You're like, we are going to start with a big one. And also... The questions I got from the Patreon uh, <laughs> patrons are like, like 1918. Let's talk about it. like this influenza, <laughs> this outbreak. So let's get let's get into some flu. Yeah, because it seems like you have the flu. You're out for a couple of days. You miss some emails. You eat some soup. You're fine. But really, it's going to kill us all. Could okay. <laughs> I mean, it's. I think the thing about the flu is that we don't really have any very effective treatment for when you actually do get flu. Ooh. So if it's if you have a really bad case of flu, it's pretty much just like, okay, let's keep you hydrated, let's let's monitor you and you're probably you're going to get you have a pretty good chance of surviving. Mm-hmm. But the scary thing is that the things like the 1918 flu could something like that could happen again. And there were a lot of things that went wrong or went right, depending on your perspective. <laughs> so yeah. Flu's publicist is like, this was a success. Planets are aligning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love to imagine that. Their little PR team after the epidemic, they're yeah. like, guys, this was great. Let's do it just like this every yeah. year. What a get. Yeah. Oh, failed. Yeah. 1973. Oh, failed. Uh, no. No, so yeah, I mean, it, something like that could happen again, where it's just sort of everything happens where you have a lot of people gathering together, uh, which we kind of do all the time now. In a, much, in a much larger degree than we did in 1918, we have global travel. I guess the recombination with animals and mammal hosts, the bird hosts, and then the viruses inside just sort of intermingling. And can you give me a, like the briefest of rundowns on that uh, 1918 flu? Just tell me, like, what, what were we dealing with here? We were dealing with a flu that started out possibly in Kansas, possibly in France. We don't really know what happened. Same thing. Same, yeah. I mean, more or less. And a couple of soldiers who were on leave probably picked it up, went back to an army base where a ton of, you know, young, otherwise healthy dudes sleeping in a giant tent, right? 
all breathing each other's spit, all pooping and mm. pooping in holes. Yeah. And, and this allowed for the, the virus to just sort of boom, 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 boom. And somehow people started just sort of dropping like flies. Like people Oy. were getting really sick and they were not recovering, which was really unusual for the flu because these were really young men, really right. healthy. And so what I think that specifically about that strain was that it caused something called a cytokine storm. So basically your immune system went into overdrive and your whole body essentially just shut down. And I think the w most common way that you died was that your lungs sort of filled up with fluid. Ooh, no. And that was... That was the end. So, but once it once it got into these army camps, of course, people who were um, maybe that they were exposed to someone a few days before got into a bus, were shipped maybe to Philadelphia. A boom, another outbreak there. And then, okay, if someone else went to England, boom, another outbreak there. And it sort of followed this like. Um, this hop, skip, and jump across the globe. And the reason that a lot of people call it the Spanish flu or used to call it the Spanish flu was because Spain was the only, one of the only countries that was not censoring its news reports. And oh. so to keep morale up around, like, you know, in the U.S. or in, in, in England, they were like, oh, no, we're not going to tell everyone how many hundreds of thousands of people are dying. We're just going to pretend like it's, you know... And Spain no was like deal. real talk. Spain was like, oh god, hey, guys, everyone's dying. What's going on? <laughs> like, are we the only ones? Oh so. my god, Spain is like that person in the party who like to call it, like be like your boyfriend sucks, and you're like, oh no, <laughs> you're right, yeah, exactly. So how many people were lost to that? I, I cannot remember. Is it fifty million? <gasps> right. One five or five zero. Oh? Five zero. Oh my god. I wanted. I, can I? Can I fact check this? Yes. And Google it. So this flu of 1918 infected. 500 million people, 10 to 20% of whom died. So on the low end, that's an estimated 50 million lives lost, maybe up to 100 million. Brutal statistics, nothing to sneeze at, which in writing that made me wonder if the term nothing to sneeze at was born of epidemiology, but it turns out, no. In the 1600s, get this, sneezing became a cool thing to do because people just thought it cleared the brain, and then sneezing at will became a way to throw shade at others. So the idiom, nothing to sneeze at, was just invented by snobs, which are maybe even worse than viruses. Because viruses are just trying to make a living and replicate themselves off of your healthy tissues. So influenza is really what what it should be on our watch list. It's Yeah, and so it, biologically, some of the reasons that most, I would say most epidemiologists probably are most afraid of influenza. Uh, one is because, um, like Aaron mentioned already, the rate of recombination is really high. What does that mean? So it means that, okay, so uh, influenza can infect a lot of different organisms. So it's not specific to humans. Okay. It can infect birds. It can infect pigs. It can infect dogs, whatever. And when it infects an organism, if you get two strains that infect the same organism, like say a pig gets mm -hmm. two different versions of flu in it at the same time, the pieces of the influenza genome can kind of break apart and reassemble <gasps> in such a way that makes a brand new virus. Oh, that's sneaky. Yeah. And so it means that it's really, uh, it, it mutates rapidly enough. Like it can do those big shifts. Those are called antigenic shift where you're basically like big changes. Mm -hmm. um, and that can make it really hard for your immune system to identify it and fight it off. It also is an RNA virus, which means its genome is made of RNA. P.S. What is RNA again? Okay. I didn't know. So RNA is like DNA, but instead of that double helix structure, it's a single helix, kind of like a springy curl. 
Now, DNA stores genetic information, and RNA acts as a messenger between the DNA and the ribosomes to make protein. So it's like DNA's wingwoman. Hey, girl, hey. But maybe she gets a little sloppy drunk sometimes. I mean, hello. Which means it doesn't have a fact-checking mechanism, so it makes more mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes mean it does something better, like it replicates oh. faster, or it's more virulent, meaning it makes you sicker, um, or things like that. So the fact that it changes so rapidly is something that makes it difficult to combat, and that's why we have a new flu shot every year, is because mm-hmm. it's a, always a slightly different strain. And the other thing is that it's spread by respiratory droplets. And so it's unlike something like Ebola, which you have to have close personal contact with bodily fluids to actually get the infection. In this room, if I breathe, I can get you infected. Yeah. And so that those are the kind of uh, components, I guess, that make a disease uh, what we call a disease of pandemic potential. Okay. so. So, okay. Is it a DPP or no? Let's call it a DPP. So you got yourself a little DPP. A little DPP. Disease of pandemic potential. I always think about exponential growth curves and populations. How, you know, you look at deer populations, human populations, it's like boop-a-doop-a-doop-a-doop and then sharp increase exponential growth and then there's always something that picks you off. Either it's famine because there's lack of resources because it can't, the population can't be sustained or it's close quarters overpopulation causes a quick drop. And we are like, if you look at human populations, like I feel like we're due for that. People say that, yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of epidemiology, do you look at populations and say, oh no, there's so many of you that you're going to spread things quickly? It definitely, so the globalization has definitely led to things having the potential to become pandemics much more easily than in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it was 2003 when SARS was a thing. And oh, everyone yeah, was like, that. that's going to be it. We've This is it. This is our next pandemic. Everyone gear up. Can I just say, I have yeah. one of my best friends. His name's Sarah. And we've called her SARS as a nickname <laughs> since we were like 12. And so she's in my phone as SARS. Oh, man. She's been in my phone since before 2003 <laughs> as SARS. And I can't change it but anyway Every time. As long I'm as it's sorry not, SARS I know you're listening SARS and I'm sorry as long as it's not in all caps it should be fine okay good right. no it's not yeah, okay so you're fine we're SARS. fine don't worry about it contextually but, totally in the clear <laughs> but yeah so with something like that it, that was a disease that you know made people really sick it was transmitted by respiratory and and at first we didn't know at all what it was and so the fact that we have globalization and people living in close quarters and cities where people are living like right on top of each other it mm-hmm. definitely makes it a lot easier for certain diseases to spread for sure it doesn't i think necessarily mean that we're going to you know that there's going to be something that kick kills the entire human population, but mm-hmm. it's possible. How much <laughs> do you guys wash your hands? Oh, not enough. <gasps> I don't. This is horrible because I'm like legitimately going to become a doctor. So I've been washing my hands. I know, right? Sorry, patients. I I do wash my hands a lot more like now that I'm doing doctory clinic things and yeah. I'm always like pumping that, you know. Hand sanitizer. That. Right. But before the clinical things, I 
don't no. You weren't like obsessive about it. No. I've I've never been obsessive about it, which is bad maybe, but I also kind of like every time I would be in the field in Panama and I would be out setting out camera traps or something and I would have just climbed through mud and trees and my hands would be filthy and I'd be like, well, I guess I forgot any soap again I, and I'm going to have to eat this sandwich and I would just corno- sign of like sing to myself like microbiome. Two questions about that. Number one, when will Purell stop working? And, uh, and do we go live in bunkers at that point? And number two, like... You know, there's like a, there are certain theories of like too much sanitation screws you up, sets you up for allergies. What is um, what is it called? The hygiene hypothesis. Yes, the hygiene. So, so where's the, where's the in-between there? I like to think, because this is how I live my life, that the in-between is if you're like picking up your dog's poop, Mm -hmm. yeah, you should wash your hands after. Good idea. But if you're just like hanging out on the beach and you're in the sand, Whatever, dude. There's okay. some microbes. If you're camping, you don't probably have soap. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, but you might have Giardia. Oh, right. <laughs> right. You have a water filter. That's okay. what's important. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just managing reasonable risks. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. well... I, when I and take public transportation, I know that people are coughing all over poles and, and, mm-hmm. and certain times I might in the winter, I'm like a little more paranoid, like, okay, time to wash my hands now. Oh, I just went and taught this class. Definitely going to wash my hands after hearing, you know, 1300 kids cough all over the place. Right. But yeah, I think, I mean, and th- we're also not saying don't wash your hands. Right. So. <laughs> right. But you're saying but that even personally, as, yeah. as epidemiologists, like you haven't reached like compulsive levels of like, oh my gosh, you're, you haven't reached a state of paranoia. Well, and I think also washing your hands, like it's a very conscious act. You're saying, okay, my hands are going to be clean now, but we touch our faces so much throughout mm-hmm. the day that when our hands are not clean, that we don't think about it. So yeah. it's like our eye, you know, you can, you can definitely infect yourself with dirty hands and the eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, and the number of ways that we can get sick is not just because we clean our hands. But if someone's on the bus and I, you know, I'm holding onto the railing and then I go home and wash my hands, that doesn't matter if someone coughed directly into my mouth when mm-hmm. I were on the bus. <laughs> Lucky you. I know, right? <laughs> Coughing directly into a stranger's mouth is how I flirt on the bus. Okay, so influenza's definitely on their shit list. And this is a poorly phrased question to ask because it kills people but do either of you have like a favorite disease or any stories of triumph where you're like wow this could have really wiped us out but we figured this shit out i feel like i mean one of the the stories that brings me great joy is the smallpox (laughs) (laughs) Erin, just like her eyes when she says it brings me great joy just to be clear it's not smallpox that brings her great joy it's the eradication so please do refrain from getting it twisted something to celebrate for sure yes how did we what was smallpox and how did we get rid of it smallpox was a virus a pox virus Mm -hmm. and we got rid of it through vaccination and this was it's one of the it actually was the smallpox vaccine was the first vaccine developed and it was developed in a very unethical way so this guy named Edward Jenner uh, basically grabbed a like a village boy and um, James, I can't remember his last name. Dang it. Uh, James Phipps, just in case anyone's taking notes. Edward Jenner had noticed that the milkmaids would get this like version of a pox that was very mild and then they would never get any sort of smallpox. 
So side note, since the CDC announced the global eradication of smallpox in 1980, it's no wonder that most of us have no idea what this sometimes fatal, oft-called speckled monster looks like. I thought maybe like it looked like zits or something. Okay, I just googled it and y'all, it's horrific. So imagine raised weeping pustules all clustered together like rush hour subway style. Like your whole body is the texture of an oozing, painful, infectious Nestle's Crunch Bar. Whole lot of no thank you. And, you know, there's always this, like, romantic idea of, like, oh, a milkmaid's skin is so pure and yes. clean and smooth. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's because they never got smallpox. Because they were exposing themselves to cowpox. So cowpox, on the other hand, rarely fatal. It looks like some sores, usually on the hands and arms, but they resemble bullet hole Halloween makeup. Seriously. I just looked it up. I may put a side-by-side on Instagram or Twitter because it's identical. And for some backstory, Dr. Jenner was this young, science-loving orphan who was taken in by some families, and in his teens, he became an apprentice to a surgeon. Because, like, back then, I don't know, being a teen was, like, middle-aged or something. It was, like, 13? Yeah, sure. You can cut some people open. You're, like, over the hill. Now, there are two theories. Either Jenner had heard reports from other local doctors that farmers who had had cowpox never got smallpox. Or there's another kind of more beloved story that as a lad, Dr. Jenner overheard a milkmaid bragging, saying, I shall never have smallpox, for I have had cowpox, so I shall never be ugly. So essentially, her milk face brought all the boys to the yard. And so he thought, okay, well, what happens if we inject or if I, we expose uh, somebody intentionally to cowpox? So he just chose a, 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 you know, a boy who had no ability to say, no, I don't think this is going to be great oh, for me. No, I wonder what that boy's deal was. So I had to look into this. I was thinking maybe James Phipps, this tiny eight-year-old human guinea pig, was like the neighborhood rapscallion. Maybe he was just a wicked bratty boy that Jenner pulled aside and stuck with a virus out of spite like poisoning Dennis the Menace. But, no, little British Jimmy Phipps was simply nearby and available. He was the son of a poor landless laborer who tended the Jenner's garden. So the doctor was like, um, do pardon me, a man who clips the roses. Might I borrow your fine young lad? I'm just going to put a disease on him. Brilliant. Cheers. So then he um, he gave this poor James Phipps cowpox, and this boy recovered. And so then Edward Jenner was like, okay, that was pretty good. That's a good sign that that's not enough. Let's expose him to smallpox. Mm. So then he took smallpox from someone who was infected and gave it, basically tried to give it to him, and it was a success. And because it came from cowpox, or vaca for cow, Dr. Jenner called it a vaccination. So he never really tried to profit off of his vaccines, which in 2018, I find that very impressive. But he was eventually awarded money from the government for his contributions to science and like saving humanity. And little James Phipps lived quite a long life, I am happy to report. And Dr. Edward Jenner gave him and his wife and his two children a free lease on a cottage, which later went on to become the Edward Jenner Museum. I also found out in researching this that on the property, there's a small thatched hut known as the Temple of Vaccinia. 
And it was originally built to be like Dr. Jenner's man cave for like writing or just chilling or I don't know what. I don't know if they just like smoked opium casually in it. But he actually ended up using it as a place where he would administer vaccinations for free to the poor. And while reading these follow-up facts, I totally cried on my keyboard. Vaccination has not always been, uh, or has, has always been a controversial issue, I should right. say. At the beginning, people were like, absolutely not. You're going to turn us into cows. This is a, this is horrible. What's wrong with you? This is unnatural. Turn us into cows by giving us cowpox? Oh, that's like all of the political cartoons around that were like anti-vaccination back then are like people as cows or other animals. Oh, man. It's really ridiculous. I mean, it's but great. a nice rack of udders would be like kind of hot in the summer. <laughs> Milk all the time. Yeah, all <laughs> the Cheese, time. butter. I can poo wherever I want. Yeah. I love this. I have four stomachs. Like, bring it on. So people were ethically like, we're not an animal. How dare you put animal things in us? And then they continue eating milk and cheese. But okay. And so and what do you think about like moving on to vaccine research like that? That must be a a real big, uh, real big itch in your trousers. I don't know what the thing. What do you say when something's a not an itch in your trousers? That sounds disgusting. In your pants? Yeah. No, is that not it? What? A thorn in your side? There you go. Okay. Yeah. There you go. That's got to be a real thorn in your side. A real itch in your snake. <laughs> so it's got to be a real, a real pain in the old neck that, yeah. um, to come up against so much resistance to vaccines. How do you deal with that? And and like, what's the nitty gritty there? I do a lot of screaming into my pillow okay. to deal with it, which helps <laughs> moderately. But uh, no, it, it is really it's really problematic because you you literally have children in the United States today dying from measles because they were too young to get vaccinated or they are immunocompromised. So they can't get vaccinated. And some kid whose mom listens to Jenny McCarthy didn't vaccinate her kids. And now there's a measles outbreak at Disneyland or whatever. Right. Which happened. Yeah, it happened. I mean, it continues to happen every year. It's like getting worse because the more kids you have not vaccinated, the greater the risk of it is. Um, It's really frustrating. And it's something that actually has been one of the the best feelings about starting our podcast is when we have people email us to be like, Hey, I got my flu shot for the first time ever because of you. And then we just cry tears of joy because that's like kind of what it's all about is like, when you look at the vaccination schedules from CDC, they do look intense. And I totally understand like my niece is like not even two years old. And like, there's pictures of her after her vaccines and she's got like a million band-aids and you're like, Oh my poor baby. And so I get it that it's a lot of vaccines, but it's, it's very easy to ignore the fact that these diseases literally killed people for decades, for hundreds of years before we came up with these vaccines. And because we aren't faced with those deaths or with paralysis from polio on a daily basis anymore, it's really easy to just ignore it and say, this is my personal right to make a choice and to not vaccinate my children. When reality is you're putting everyone's children at risk of death by not doing it. So, and what do you think about the risks uh, that seem to keep people up at night, like the risks, the risks of autism or mercury poisoning or setting off some kind of wildfire of an autoimmune response. Yeah. So the autism thing is a hundred percent false. Like there's not even a millionth of a risk there that, uh, there was one paper by, 
Andrew. We're not going to mention his name. He's not worth mentioning. Voldemort. Got it. Voldemort. uh, He who must not be named who wrote that paper got like fired from the medical society and had to retract his paper because it was completely falsified. Wow. Like it wasn't just that they were like, we don't like your data. It was completely false. So that entire association with autism, which is one of the main things that sort of started this anti-vax movement, at least in the States and also in the UK, because that's Mm -hmm. where he was from. um, That it's it's based on a completely false statement, a false paper that it is not real, 100%. So if you had to debunk some flim flam, yeah. that would be this. It's, yeah, it's the easiest thing to debunk because it's 100% false. Mm-hmm. There are very small risks of other like adverse reactions. There are certain vaccines that you should not get that you're contraindicated to get if you have certain allergies. And that's something that you and your doctor should talk about, obviously. Mm -hmm. But all of the other risks are orders of magnitude less than the risk of dying if you get this like measles or Mm -hmm. something like that. And and all of those like adverse reactions, like if someone cannot have a vaccine for that reason, that's like that's this. There's something called herd immunity. And so that's fine. And so the small proportion of the population that is not vaccinated I feel like should be reserved for the people who actually cannot for health reasons, not mm. for personal choice, not because, oh, I'm scared that my child will have autism because that is not true. Like mm-hmm. your child may develop autism or maybe diagnosed as autism, but that's not because of the vaccine. And that has been shown for decades now. Right. And so I think that it's sort of debunking some of these things. And I think that our, you know, our podcast in, in a way is sort of, I think we have a responsibility as just as every disease ecologist, epidemiologist or science communicator has to, to inform and say, okay, let's actually talk about what's going on here. And so by saying we're doing two things by saying, okay, the flu vaccine is actually really important, even though every year there are people who go, oh, well, it's not effective this year. So why do I even get it? Mm-hmm. And you still get it. Like just, <laughs> just get it. Right. But but we also, I think, in talking about in the ways that these diseases have impacted people in the past, and you know, it's, I think, also bringing awareness to the fact that yes, a lot of these, a lot of these diseases we can talk about within the past tense, but for so many, that's only because we are privileged with mm-hmm. where we are, right. and so for so many other people who don't have a vac, who can't get a vaccine for something like think about what's going on there and be aware that this is still a huge problem. So there have been theories about correlations between autoimmune diseases, where your body's immune system just loses its shit and attacks its own tissues, like MS and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, and any possible links to vaccine use. But a lot of experts say that it's just as likely, if not more, that wild infections can trigger the body's immune response in people predisposed to autoimmune diseases. So I don't have much for you there, but as soon as I have an immunologist on, I'm going to ask about autoimmune diseases since they run heavily in my family and I'm just very selfishly curious. Okay, let's ask more just super smart, hard-hitting, and really complicated questions. Do you guys have any favorite movies about diseases? Oh, Contagion. Oh, really? What is it about Contagion versus Outbreak versus, uh, I mean, like so many other disease movies? Like, lay it on me. I So I haven't seen Outbreak. Okay. Which I I know I should. I know. A gasp from the other era. Yeah, (gasps) I know. It's atrocious. But it doesn't matter because Contagion is, I know, so much better. Okay. So between Outbreak and Contagion, two out of two epidemiologists named Aaron prefer the 2011 film Contagion. Which one is Contagion? Contagion is the one with Kate Winslet, a.k.a. my hero. 
Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. Stay away from other people. So that movie came out while I was doing my master's. And I told my mom, oh, mom, if you were wondering why I'm doing my master's and why I'm applying to MD-PhD programs, watch this movie. This is who I want to be. And after the movie, she was like, oh, Erin, that's just so great. You're going to be the one who saves the day and finds the cure. I'm like, nah, bruh. I want to be Kate Winslet. (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler redacted, kiddos, because I care. I care. And she got really upset about it. Uh, But that movie is... They worked with CDC and they worked with public health professionals and they did such an awesome job of keeping it very true to life. I think it is the scariest movie that you can watch because it's... It's so weirdly accurate. It's not perfect. You know, there are science things that aren't absolutely perfect. We actually, in a class that our advisor teaches, he has the kids watch the movie and critique it. Like, what did they, what is true to life and what things are not true to life? So that's mm-hmm. a fun little exercise. Oh. Into it. Also, it must be noted that um, Kate Winslet plays an epidemiologist named Aaron. <gasps> oh my God, I forgot that. <laughs> Get out of town. She needs to meet you guys for real. Oh my gosh. We need to hook I this up. I would die. Okay. Okay, are you listening? Um, Hi. Is that, Aaron? is that also your favorite contagion? I, I, I think it is. I think it is the most unsettling. And I definitely, like, after I watched that, or after washed that, see, I'm already, <laughs> I'm already thinking about it. After, after I watched that, I was washing my hands a lot more because... Yeah, you were like... But it is, I mean, it's really scary. It shows at the very beginning, you see, or no, it's not even at the beginning, it's the very end, yeah. where you see how the the virus that has caused this pandemic has jumped from animal to animal to human. And it's just sort of all of, it's, it's so, I, I just got goosebumps. It's so real. Like, it's so, that is how it has happened for, um, for SARS, I think was a very similar, uh, series of events in terms of like wildlife to then a, an outdoor market to then a domestic animal to then humans. And mm-hmm. so this like SARS actually was a pretty good shot at it for a while. And then it, for, for various reasons, it didn't become like a full fledged pandemic. Thank goodness. But was that because we controlled it or because it just died out? This is so fun. Okay. The reason that I I get really excited about (laughs) this SARS one, but one of the main reasons why SARS didn't become as big of a pandemic as it could have been and as people were afraid that it would is because we were able to catch it early and they did a lot of really intense quarantines at airports. But the reason you could quarantine at an airport is because SARS, uh, with when you get infected with SARS, you actually begin to show symptoms before you're infectious. Oh, so if you're coughing on a plane, like during 2003 SARS outbreak, if you were on a plane from any of the areas where SARS had been a problem and you were coughing, they were going to quarantine you. Oh, wow. But that worked as a quarantine method because people were not yet infectious with something like influenza. You're infectious for several days before you show symptoms. Right. So quarantine is much less effective. And what about Ebola? The reason that it became as big as it did was in part because of miscommunication between like World Health Organization and CDC and like people on the ground. It was in part because it made it into a larger city that it didn't usually usually Ebola outbreaks happen at sort of more rural areas because that is a disease that tends to happen as what we call spillover. So from animal populations spilling over into human populations. Bats, right? Bats, in this case, yeah, they they are pretty sure in the big 2014 Ebola outbreak, they traced it back to a kid playing in a tree with a bat. This is sad for the humans and also for the bats. And I hate that because bats are like just getting on the up and up where people are like, don't worry about bats, you guys. They're good. They're cool. They got... We should save them. They're really important. Yeah. And they are. 
but they also are great at diseases. Oh like, no! So many diseases. Why are in bats? I have no idea. I think it's part of it is because they're mammals and they can disperse long distances. Also, that for a lot of bats, there's this communal living. Like it's a lot yeah. of bats in one population. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have the opportunity for something to spread very rapidly. And so with um, with Ebola, what's the latest on like a vaccine for that? How how are we? Let's check in on. Let's knock on Ebola's door and do a little visit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, from what I know, there is a vaccine that they tested right towards the end of that outbreak in 2014, and it is effective. And so I think now they have been using it in cor- current outbreaks that are happening. And things, okay. So. so that's a We can it's sleep good. a little easier. Yeah. And the thing is that here in the U.S., there really was no, never a reason to not sleep easy because since the way that Ebola is transmitted is is through close physical contact with blood or other bodily fluids you living in Chicago or LA, you're not at risk, right? right? That's not the disease that's going to become the next pandemic just because, mostly because of the mode of transmission. Okay, so what is the medical community's stance on illnesses that some would argue are behavioral or lifestyle influenced, like smoking-related lung cancer or obesity or heart disease? Do those fall under the same epidemiological protocol in terms of response to them? Yeah, so I know the CDC, I think just a couple of years ago, actually classified obesity as a disease. So it's officially classified. I have personal feelings about that, but... Yeah, because it's, I I feel like it's not... We say we say that certain behaviors are a choice, but I feel like they're so we're we're marketed to in a way that is that is a pathology in and of itself. Exactly, but it's so hard to say it's a choice when you're like, oh, there's billions of dollars at making our brains make these choices. Yeah. How free are we to make these choices? Like, right. I don't think that a huge swath of the population would suddenly become obese of their own doing. Right, it's, exactly. And that's symptom, not, yeah, right? and that's not sort of how this has come to pass. But it is definitely something that more and more the CDC and public health agencies, like state public health agencies, are focusing on more. Mm-hmm. It's it's then, therefore, very easy to ignore infectious diseases in this country because chronic illnesses and things tend to take the forefront, right. which makes sense because those, in some ways, because that's sort of the, what what costs the most in terms of healthcare dollars in this mm-hmm. country. Um, but yeah, so they, I would say most public health professionals do call those things epidemics or pandemics because mm-hmm. that's the way that they view them. I'd have a lot of just personal feelings about it. So, but yeah, I mean, I feel like we, we talk about pathogens and we talk about viruses, bacteria, um, you know, parasites and okay, that's, that's who, that's what we're up against. Yeah. But with things like heart disease, um, you know, a pulmonary disease from smoking, obesity, the pathogen is like capitalism. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> what do we that's do? That's exactly what it is, you know? And it's also, it's... Well, I, just as a as a little side note to bring pathogen or to bring microbes into this question of uh, obesity and oh, so right, on, right. Is that there is a lot of recent research that suggests that the way our, our gut microbiome is, sure. is organized might actually contribute to a lot of these things that we consider um, behavioral epidemics. Exactly. And so that's, I think, a really interesting facet that we're only beginning to grasp sort of the enormity of, of how, how the microbes in our gut are actually making our choices for us in right. some ways. And so there's a really interesting book called Your Brain on Parasites. Side note, full title, quote, this is your brain on parasites, how tiny creatures manipulate our behavior and shape society by Kathleen McAuliffe. And call me crazy, seems like a good beach read. 
She deals a lot of this, like the question of, of being what choices are our own. And exactly. so, and so, yeah, but, the, but in addition, you know, these, it's behavioral, or be, these chronic disease epidemiology is really difficult to kind of get a grasp of the risk factors for, because it's very easy to say, okay, well, this person ate that, or this person smoked or X, Y, and Z, but assessing those data, like getting, mm -hmm. going out and collecting the surveys. I mean, asking someone what they ate for lunch three days ago, like I have no idea what I ate. Yeah. And no. so it's just in general, very difficult data to get, but I'm thankful that in our med school, we talk a lot about this. It's also a problem of health literacy mm -hmm. where we have huge health disparities in this country that are a result of wealth disparities and education disparities. And these result in health literacy disparities so that if people if they do have access to a healthcare provider, they might not actually be getting all the information that they need from that. And if they do get information, it might not be in a language that they can understand or in terms that they can understand, or they might not know what to do with that information. Chronic diseases in general are a very much more complicated in very different ways. Right. Some of the same ways too, especially in terms of wealth. But anyways, and also, they're complicated. From what I understand in med school, you have like a four-hour course on nutrition. Our nutrition and our gut biome aren't necessarily super addressed in Western no, medicine. No, definitely not. And then not. we're like, oh, we have this epidemic, but it's everyone's own personal fault. And yeah. you're like, excuse me, like, yeah. if you only had four hours on right. infectious diseases in your entire, you know, yeah. in your entire med school, you probably wouldn't be very good at solving that. I don't even think... I, I am actually now remembering that as part of my biochemistry class, we had a nutrition component, mm -hmm. but it was this online thing. And I just straight up clicked because yeah. I was like, I don't have time for this. I'm trying yeah. to write a dissertation. I'm trying to do field yeah. work, you know? And so, yeah, it's definitely not, there's a lot of things that I think don't get addressed mm -hmm. as well as they could. A lot of the problems that we put on individual people sort of stem from these systemic issues exactly. that we have in the country. We wouldn't see, we wouldn't see such a huge spike if there weren't something systemic underneath it. Exactly. It's weird that in, in, a first world nation that the big sweeping dangers that we're up against are so ingrained. It's not nature we're fighting against. It's money, which yeah. is like, oh, like yeah. so awful. Oh, man. Okay. We have so many Patreon questions and very limited time, but shoot. Okay. Shoot. Just one more first. But I do want to ask Lyme disease, what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I was hoping not to get this question. No. So... I, so my, I am, I have to admit that I am not a Lyme disease expert in any way, shape or form. Okay. So I am like a, a Panama tick, tropical tick lady and, um, <laughs> tropical tick lady. <laughs> and there's my theme song. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that being said, Lyme disease. So we've been seeing a lot lately in the news, you know, reports. I get, I get forwards from, you know, family members and friends like, oh, I just saw this about ticks. And tick-borne disease is incredibly on the rise. Like we've seen doubling of cases over the past couple decades. And part of that has to do with more reporting. Part of that has to do with the fact that it is actually increasing both in terms of incidence, so the number of cases a year, but also in terms of geography. So where people are actually getting infected. Right. And Lyme disease is one of these where it is spreading and spreading and spreading. And part of what is driving the increase in cases is um, development, basically. And so by changing the structure of, of forest, you're changing the animals that live in the forest. And some air, some animals are better at uh, transmitting Lyme to ticks than other animals. Mm -hmm. So 
if you imagine a tiny little baby tick just yeah. emerged and it does not have Lyme. So it, when it is born, it does not have any Lyme disease in it, even right. if its mother had Lyme. And it's the size of a poppy seed. It's yes. Right? It's teeny tiny. Teeny. Yes. I remember CDC issued like an apology yeah. for ruining poppy seed muffins. Dude, this just absolutely won Twitter for me. So a few months ago, the CDC published this photo to illustrate just how tiny nymph ticks can be by placing a few of them on a poppy seed muffin with the caption, can you spot all five ticks in this photo? Plus a link to learn how to prevent tick bites. This tweet had everything. Food porn, a hidden twist, there was science communication outreach, a puzzle, and a link to save lives. But nevertheless, Big Muffin got in the way, and as a USA Today headline woefully reported the next day, quote, CDC apologizes for hiding ticks on a poppy seed muffin to warn of Lyme disease threat. The CDC followed up with a tweet, quote, Sorry we ticked some of you off. Oh, no. I loved I that. Loved it. it was amazing. It, it was so it. good. Yeah. Oh, I would constantly in Panama when I would come across a tick bomb of larval ticks, mm. I would play freckle or tick like all the time. <laughs> Wait tick bomb oh i should have brought pictures yes or a video actually oh my god and you do have freckles mm -hmm. oh that's a mm -hmm. nightmare so the most ticks that i have ever counted in one mm. si over 6800 ticks in one tick bomb so a female tick lays a clutch of eggs after she's fed and then they all hatch at once R roughly and then they all do something called questing which sounds very like you know arthurian legend but yeah. it's just going to the end of a piece of vegetation where they wait for a, an unsuspecting host to walk by and it's a writhing mass oh god of ticks oh god and uh so i would i would that's how you collect ticks ah. is you just drag you drag a piece of cloth through vegetation and you count them and um so i would they would crawl up on the cloth onto my arms oh. or i would just brush up against it when I was doing camera trapping and they'd be all over. So I'm having a full body cringe. I'm so this sorry. Is, and I love bugs. Like yeah, I no, love bugs, except for ticks. Ticks are pretty gross. Ticks yeah. and roaches are like, sorry, no, 86th. Yeah. Oh yeah, so, roaches for sure. But in but from what I understand, Lyme disease is there's like 300,000 cases a year. So I just looked at a CDC map comparing the rates and distribution of Lyme from 2001 to 2016. Dude, it looks like someone broke a pen near Connecticut and the ink is just steadily hemorrhaging into New England and the rest of the United States. And just for funsies, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna mention if you're into conspiracy theories, say, you might wanna look up Lyme and Plum Island Animal Disease Center, which was a government military testing facility that employed rehomed Nazi doctors to do trials on animal-borne bio-warfare. Now, fun fact, Plum Island sits eight miles off the coast of Old Lyme, Connecticut, where Lyme disease was first identified. Now, am I saying that this conspiracy theory is true? No. Am I telling you that it's super interesting? Yes. Am I a doctor? No. But anyway, 300,000 cases a year of Lyme disease in the United States alone. Now, Dr. Welsh who likely does not believe in conspiracy theories, explains some other reasons why Lyme might be spreading. Yeah, that's a that's a lot. It's right? a lot. And so this is it's sort of it's one of these things where it's these ticks are now 
in, infected. Like where, mm-hmm. where the disease is, is present, like all of the ticks are infected. And, um, yeah. And so it, it's because we have these suburbia basically where we have in these, in these areas, we have, uh, deer can still live amongst, um, you know, neighborhoods and stuff like that. And so that doesn't really hurt deer populations. Mm-hmm. Mice can also live amongst these neighborhoods. Doesn't hurt mice populations. Mice are really, really good at infecting ticks with Lyme disease. Right. And deer are really good at feeding ticks and making more ticks. And so with the combination of these two things, you just have this explosive boom. So when we deforest an area, Mm -hmm. we reduce the number of species around. Right. And then we then get this huge increase in tick-borne disease because we have the hosts that are left that amplify the ticks and amplify the pathogen. So that's part of what's going on in addition to just this general geographic spread. You know, we could throw in some, some climate change up in there and talk about the overwintering survival of a tick. There, mm. It's a very, I mean, vector-borne disease is super complicated. And what about chronic Lyme? Chronic Lyme is a really interesting thing. I think, you know, the the definition or the um, the treatment with in public health and um, regarding public Lyme has really changed over the past couple of decades because it first became, it first started out as being this like, oh, it's all in your head. Oh, it's all in right, your head. Right. And now it's becoming increasingly apparent that it's actually not in your head. And these are people for who, whatever reason are, um, having some, having symptoms that last long beyond the active infection stage. Mm-hmm. And so whether it is something where your body recognizes the, the Lyme bacterium and then, um, it just like, and then that, that Lyme bacterium is very similar to a cell that you already have in your body and it elicits this huge autoimmune reaction. Right. How much is like, how much is like severe autoimmune reactions to some kind of uh, infection? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And there's other vector borne diseases that can cause weirdly long lasting like joint pains and things mm-hmm. if you get infected with something like chikungunya or dengue chikungunya it sounds like a lunch special yeah it's another like vector borne it's transmitted by the same mosquitoes that transmit dengue and zika mm. uh, and it also invaded like in the same way as zika did like started in the Caribbean and then sort of spread to South America and it just sort of as all these diseases do they get press and then they fade from the public eye but yeah there's are they fading because the disease is fading or are they fading because no one cares anymore a little bit of both a little bit of both i think that because so when you talked earlier about the exponential growth of populations you see the same thing in epidemics so you have what's called an epidemic curve where when a disease invades a susceptible population a whole bunch of people get sick really fast but then you hit some sort of peak and what causes that peak is maybe like there's no more susceptible people left in the population or something and so then that disease will decline and it's literally like a hump like a mountain Mm -hmm. shape and that's what's called an epidemic curve and every single outbreak follows this exact pattern how big the curve is or how wide it is depends on the disease and so when you have that waning phase of a disease, it's very easy to just stop talking about it because, well, people aren't getting sick anymore. Right. It's also, you know, you get funding for a certain amount of time. So it's in the news. And then the next news cycle comes around and people stop talking about it. And chikungunya is hard to pronounce. So people don't talk about it. It really does sound like a curry. <laughs> you. And I, also, I wonder I wonder how much of it, too, is is like, oh, well, Zika, Zika was huge. People were like, oh, no, we're in the U.S. Can it happen here? Mm-hmm. And then once that answer slowly could be, kind of became no, it became less of an interesting right. or like, you know, press hot issue. But as soon as pregnant women started being like, I'll go to Mexico. You know <laughs> what I mean? Then it was like, yeah, yeah. Became, are you guys ready for rapid fire? So ready. Okay. I'm, we're going to blaze through these. Okay. You ready? Okay. But before we take 
questions from you, our beloved listeners. We're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AllieWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by ologists who work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. 
And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high-quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified, and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay your questions. Sarah Nichelle wants to know, what is the deal with the dancing plague of 1518? <gasps> Great question. Okay. Um, I've looked into it the tiniest bit and it seems like it's still unclear, but I really want to do that as a future episode. Yeah. So right. what happened? Stay tuned. It what? was just a bunch of people started dancing to the point of exhaustion. Like they dropped dead from dancing so much. It's, it sounds like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode because <laughs> it was fact checked and yes this epidemic was said to have inspired the dancing demon of buffy's musical episode titled once more with feeling <laughs> are you serious now what do they think caused this i don't know like i don't i don't remember what the different hypotheses were in the wikipedia article that i glanced through once top contenders famine induced psychological distress and or possible wheat fungus more on that in a minute Oh my god. Um, it sounds like just Chardonnay at a wedding disease. Might have been. Open bar a wedding is aka a dancing plague. Um, okay, Greg, Hannah Silverman, Allison Bray, and Brittany Bell all asked, essentially, as global warming continues to expose more and more diseases, and we generally work to destroy ourselves through our own short-sightedness, are we as humans destined for a sudden, massive population crash? And like, essentially, how is climate change affecting things like mosquitoes, vector-borne diseases, like wh how is climate change affecting epidemics and how much are we going to die? Yeah, that's a good question. It's definitely the one thing that people can say for sure is that climate change is going to affect infectious disease, whether that means it's going to change the distribution of diseases or whether that so meaning that diseases will happen in places that they didn't happen before or whether it means that you're going to have more diseases than we had before. It's a little bit hard to say at this point. Okay. It's still sort of a crapshoot and it's who you talk to and also where you live. So it could be that as climates warm in more temperate regions and it's warmer for longer, yeah, maybe diseases might shift, but then that also might mean that in some areas it becomes too hot for certain diseases, like oh. in some areas of the tropics, right. perhaps. It definitely can shift the placement of vectors. So you might have mosquitoes moving into new areas or ticks wintering better or like their populations lasting longer. You actually study climate. I don't. <laughs> well, I think, no, I think that, that you, you answered it perfectly. I think the other thing though, is that climate change, yes, will impact disease, infectious diseases and the direction and the strength, et cetera, is always very dependent upon where you are and what disease you're talking about. But I also think that having studied climate change and tick-borne disease, that the, the way that climate change is actually going to probably impact humanity is not as much through, you know, vector-borne disease as it is through, you know, actually like farming and crops and, and oh. just famine worldwide. I think that those are the more pressing of uh, water, water availability. I mean, 
water is clean water is not accessible for so many people now right. it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and Oof. so it's Diseases is not the least of our problems, but it is, I think, trumped by a couple of other big, big names. Trumped by big names. Ah, ah. So, you know, don't worry about diseases that much because other problems are probably going to get us first. And while that seems very depressing, if you've listened to the show before, you know, I always like to reflect on mortality or the upcoming apocalypse as an excuse today to say, fuck it, text your crush. Cut bangs. Eat a quesadilla. We're all going to die. Anna Thompson wants to know, were the Salem witch trials a mass delusion brought on by Ergo? Ergot? I can't remember. It's, I know it's a wheat rust, but I can't remember how it's pronounced. So as promised, more on this. This is a grain fungus that contains all kinds of toxic alkaloids. And in some cases, precursors to LSD. So symptoms of contamination can include muscle spasms, fever, and hallucinations, mania, feeling dazed. You can have tremors, distorted perceptions, according to Wikipedia. Now, in terms of its pronunciation, I found out it's... This is a ergot fungus. So, ergot, or claviceps, if you're nasty. And I learned this because I accidentally watched way too much of a YouTube video by a guy called Basic Survival. And it's just the visual image of his hand palming an infected blade of grass as his very, very oddly sensual, like beyond ASMR voice, just drones for an astounding six minutes about the history of ergot fungus. I feel like I just, I need to know his life story. And I'm sorry, I just have to play you like 10 more seconds because it's just so bizarrely soothing. It uh, destroys the nerves underneath the skin there and it also bothers the capillaries and uh, causes intense burning feeling and uh, big bad sores crop up and, and it'll even destroy your brain. Anyway, grain fungus, just making people silly since witch burning times. I have heard that before. I've mm -hmm. also heard that, so there's this, there's this new Netflix a movie called Brain on Fire based on a yeah. book by a, a, a journalist who uh, I can't remember what the name of, of the... She had encephalitis, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they don't know the exact source of what it was, but that's another hypothesis is that some of these like witch trials were um, based on oh, wow. people who had this encephalitis that caused them to have these psychotic like um, delusions and, and be right. basically labeled as like a psychotic person instead of, okay, well, let's actually find out what's going on. Especially in children, there's that, um, there's pandas, which is a brain encephalitis caused by strep that is, mm -hmm. children are susceptible to, which can cause like immediate behavioral changes, right? I wonder if there was something like a strep outbreak. I yes. think it was just fragile masculinity, but <laughs> quite possibly <laughs> just a, just a pandemic fear of witches. Exactly. Um, Aki wants to know, is antibiotic resistance a critical issue? Heck yes. Okay. Oh, I can say hell. Hell yeah. yes. Yeah. Like, you can say <laughs> fuck yes you and fuck you're yes. fine. <laughs> we don't cuss on our podcast, so this is new with a microphone. Fuck yes. It's yeah. a huge problem. <laughs> oh my God. It is It is one of the scariest problems for sure. Yeah. Like antibiotic resistant strep in or staph in hospitals is mm. massively huge. Antibiotic resistant. My dad got sepsis from antibiotic resistant UTI infection. No. It was awful. Antibiotic resistant tuberculosis is 
terrifying. XDR TB. That's what they call it. And what about MRSA? MRSA, exactly. That's Staphylococcus aureus. And so now the the fix to that is stop taking antibiotics when you have viruses, right? Yeah. So there's definitely like the the doctors shouldn't be prescribing antibiotics for things that they don't know are bacterial. But a large part of the problem too is like the agricultural industry, and they they use antibiotics prophyl prophylactically. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to give all of our cows antibiotics so they don't get sick. And so prophylactic antibiotic use is a huge issue Oh wow! that is help driving it. So it's not, it's kind of the same thing when you talk about like, how can we solve climate change or stop putting trash everywhere? Like, yes, we have personal responsibilities, but there's also this systemic responsibility Mm -hmm. that is not being addressed as much. Right. So on the personal side of things, if you are prescribed an antibiotic for something, take the entire course of it. Don't, don't say, save a few pills for oh, in case next time I have a sore throat. Right. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't like, do that. People will do that all the time. Don't do that. Take every single pill. Cause that, what that does is it basically when you take, let's say three quarters of your antibiotics, you're going to kill. This is very basic, but three right. quarters of the bacteria in your body and your, your, your body will probably fight off the rest of it. But those, or, or it might just be selecting the ones that are resistant. The strongest resistant. ones are like, oh, yeah. Oh my God. It's yeah. like the people who are left at your party at like two in the morning are the worst <laughs> people. You're like, go home. Go home. Yeah, Get exactly. How? <laughs> you should have left forever ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So keep kicking them out. Yep. Um, it's funny. And our healthcare system is such a beautiful thing that mm-hmm. I have friends who are like actors who don't have health insurance who are like, oh, if I get strep throat, I just order fish antibiotics online. And you're like, oh, America. Wow. Uh, they're like, yeah, you just use them in fish tanks, but you can also take them for strep. Like, yes, people do that. Like, there are whole Reddit subreddits, like, oh my subreddits gosh. about like... This is such a good learning experience. Like veterinary antibiotics that you can get for your dogs and you cats that are cheaper. buy them online. Yep. I know. Dang. Don't do it. Um... Wow. Okay. Uh, John Worcester and Stephanie Hancock both wanted to know, is there any cure for the Lone Star tick bite that makes you allergic to meat? <gasps> and do you think there's a possibility that the Lone Star tick is evolution's way of helping with global warming by moving <laughs> us to a red meat reduced society? Oh, that's a fun thing to think about, but it's that's just not how evolution works. Oh. But you can answer this tick one. I, I actually do love every time. It's, <laughs> it's always brought up as like, oh, every time that um, someone says, oh, the red meat allergy from Lone Star tick, they're like, maybe that's a good... And I'm like, like, well, yeah, it's kind of a good thing. I mean, it it could be a good thing. Yeah. So the almost dying part, not a good, not a plus. <laughs> I have I have um, some anecdotal evidence, not not personally, but so what, it seems that the strength of the allergy varies depending on who you are, mm-hmm. and it might depend on what tick bit you. But some people, uh, it seems to be last decades or even a lifetime. And anytime they re-expose themselves to red meat, it's a really bad reaction like anaphylaxis, etc. On the other hand, I have known people, uh, because there seems to be an outbreak, uh, like yeah. a, um, a high frequency of cases in Panama for some reason, oh. where we worked. <gasps> like I had a lot of friends who would be like, yeah, now I have this red meat allergy. Oh, what do I do? No. Which is really strange. Yeah. So it's on every continent except for Antarctica. Um, I think it first popped up in Australia. Anyway, some mm-hmm. of these people would come back to me and say, yeah, actually, I've tried out different meats and mm-hmm. I tried out different kinds of meats. Like, OK, so a steak, still a no go. Pepperoni. Yeah, that's actually OK if I eat it. Weird. And then uh, another person said, I tried lamb. I tried, you know, veal. I tried deer. And um, and a few years after they had first gotten the allergy, it kind of just went away. OK, so I, there, as far as I know, there's no treatment for it, but I think it is just really um, depends on who you are. 
I just looked this up on some health sites, and even they were like, I don't know, man, Benadryl? Epinephrine? Fucking sucks, dude. There's always chicken, I guess. Cut to chickens in a lab, engineering the next tick-borne pathogens. Last questions. What about your job sucks so bad? What is the worst thing about your job? Dr. Almond Updike started off. I guess our jobs right now are grad school. Mm -hmm. So I just finished half of my grad school, but I still have three more years left. And I think the worst part for me is how small academia can feel. So it's like, am I glad I did it? Mostly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's done now. But But you're also shaking it up by doing your own psychom, which is kind of cool. Right. You're doing it your way. Yeah. Which is neat. (laughs) Erin, what about you? I think, I mean, I think my answer is probably going to be fairly similar. The culture of academia, the the fact that we're doing, so we're doing disease ecology work. Mm -hmm. We're doing work that can be applied to public health. It can be applied to wildlife conservation. But it doesn't feel that way. And it also feels very frustrating to kind of sort of like I'm just I look around and I think we're disease ecologists. Why aren't we actually helping people like why it feels like the, that the the data that I'm collecting, the results that I'm writing up are just going to sit in an academic journal where they're going to be accessed by people who have subscriptions, who have the privilege to be able to read these journals. And that's it. And that feels so disappointing and it feels so unfulfilling in so many ways mm-hmm. um, because it is more than that. Like the reason that I am interested in in doing this research is so that I can actually help people. Like we're, we're, the world is on fire around us Mm -hmm. and we're just kind of like dawdling like oh but you know this p-value isn't quite significant (laughs) so I don't know I guess I can't publish this like that feels it feels so we get two in our own heads it's funny that your work deals with assassin bugs tick bombs like (laughs) probably not the best toilets and you're like the worst thing is the culture of academia like that says a lot that there needs there needs to be maybe some change there culturally if you're like the (laughs) <laughs> the 6,000 ticks on my body is not the worst thing about my life. No, no, no. no. That's yeah. fun. It's like, it's, it's, while you're slogging through it, you're like, this day is the worst. But yeah. like, realistically, it's yeah. fun. Those are the funnest times of, right. of grad school is doing field work and, and being miserable while you're doing field work, but also having fun. What is the best thing about epidemiology or your work or what are you looking forward to the most in your career? I think for me, the best thing about, I would say the best thing about grad school in general, and when I am able to take a step back and look at it from this perspective, it makes things a lot better, is that I have, for the last five, actually seven years, I get paid to learn, Yeah, which is so cool and like what an awesome opportunity. And and I love the things that I'm learning and I, I do love the program that I'm in and I'm so happy that even though I have three years left and I'm going to be in Champaign, which isn't like the most exciting town. I'm Champagne so, problems though. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's, I'm thrilled about the next three years of doing more clinical work and being able to actually like do things with everything that I've learned. But getting, being able to be paid to learn cool stuff is awesome it's legit yeah pretty pretty dope it's pretty great what about you Aaron? i mean honestly i think my favorite thing is the field work which was horrible at times but (laughs) also i got to basically spend years in panama being outside collecting data and then being able to like analyze those data and say okay but what actually is going on here so the Mm -hmm. excitement of finding out the answer to your problem or the answer to your questions is really thrilling and also sort of the satisfaction which sounds very selfish of being like oh you know what this 
can actually help people. I just right. have to make that leap yeah. to do it. But it is, I mean, I do, there were so many times when I would be in Panama and I would look around and I would say, I can't believe that this is my life. Yeah. I get to do this. Yeah. Why didn't anyone tell me this when I was a kid that I could actually have a life like this? Well, so. I'm glad you guys are doing it. Thanks for <laughs> fixing the world. I'm such a big fan. Thank you guys so much for being on. And I hope yeah. I never catch any of these diseases. Me too. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. So ask smart doctors stupid questions, because without them, we'd all just be festering skin bags full of bacteria. JK, we are already that, and it's fine. But that's a topic for a microbiologist. Now, to find out more about the doctors, Erin, check out This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get podcasts. They are This Podcast Will Kill You on Instagram and TPWKY on Twitter. We are Ologies on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm Allie Ward with one L on both, so do follow along. Now, the Ologies podcast group is just a a wonderful collection of very cool, curious humans on Facebook, and thank you to Hannah Lippo and Erin Talbert for moderating that group, which contains, at present count, zero assholes. You can cover your body in Ologies merch at ologiesmerch.com, and you can find my merch queens Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch tagged on the Ologies Instagram. You can follow them because they make very pretty pictures. They're both artists and they're wonderful. Uh, Nick Thorburn wrote and performed the music. And big, big thanks as always to Stephen Ray Morris for editing this all together and for pulling last week's all-nighter to get sharks up in time for Shark Week. Stephen, you are a glimmering treasure from the sea. So if you listen to the end of the episode, you know I tell a secret. And this week's secret is more of a life hack. I'm trying to use to help myself have like some life work balance. It's called time blocking. It's where you say, okay, from this time to this time, I answer emails. From this time to this time, I write. From this time to this time, I'll eat. So far, my secret is it's helped me get this episode turned around two days faster. So boom, there you go. You're welcome. We're going to see if this sticks. I don't know. We'll check in next week. I'll let you know if I'm still doing it. But so far this week, so far so good. Okay, go cut those bangs and wash your hands, baby. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, In this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.